0: What does the healing process from trauma look like over the course of a lifetime?
1: Well, I think it, it um, at first, I mean, in my experience and, and many others, there, there's, there's a fixation first on the trauma. I mean, that you have to really focus on what happened to you and that, that involves naming it. It involves grieving for what you've lost. It involves getting angry at what happened to you. It means breaking silence and not keeping it just inside yourself. And, you know, many other steps to actually confronting the trauma. And, you know, for me, I did a lot of therapy um, and really needed the help of a therapist. People use a lot of different modalities to help along their healing journey. And for me, and then there's like all the ways we cope with trauma then we have to deal with those, you know, like the habits, like it could be an addiction, it could be some other compulsive behavior, it could be the way we dissociate.
0: Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a Revelation Project, and what gets revealed, gets healed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Revelation Project podcast. So, I'm with Laura Davis today, and she is the author of seven books, including a book that I I know that I've seen a million times. I haven't yet read it, but it's called The Courage to Heal, Becoming the Parent You Want to Be, and I Thought We'd Never Speak Again. Her groundbreaking books have been translated into 11 languages, and she's sold over 2 million copies. In addition to writing books that inspire and change people's lives, the work of Laura's heart is to teach. For more than 20 years, she's helped people find their voices, tell their stories, and hone their craft. Laura loves creating supportive, intimate writing communities online, in person, and internationally. Today, we'll be talking about her brand new memoir, The Burning Light of Two Stars, a mother-daughter story, the story of her embattled yet loving relationship with her mother. Hi, Laura. Hi.
1: So great to be here today.
0: Oh, it's so, so great to have you. It's an honor to have you. Reading your book has just, I don't, you know, there's divine timing is what I'll call it. And I feel like that's what it is to come in contact with your work. Because as I had shared with you, and as my audience knows, I am in the process of writing a part memoir, a part self-help book. And so much of the storytelling is about my own relationship with my mother. And so reading your work and just your beautiful writing and this dynamic that it's embattled and yet it's a loving relationship because there's both and it's complicated. And so I just really wanted to first start by honoring your you know and congratulating you for your book and your work and your writing. It's just beautiful.
1: It's um it's an exciting time for me because it took me 10 years to write this book and then, you know, a year to publish it and record the audiobook and all of that and to have it just coming out it's like it's like giving birth to a fully formed adult wow and it's just such an exciting time because it's been in my head and in my body um, and in my psyche for so long and now it gets to be shared with readers and you know as a as an author the cycle is not complete until the reader reads the book because it's it's really a relationship between the author and the audience, the reader, you know, so that you bring your life experience, just like you told me before the show, to the story. And it becomes, it's like gets transformed into a whole other thing than what I wrote, you know, because it, it triggers things in you, it influences things in you, it makes you think and you bring your own realities to it. And I, I just love that completing the circuit. And so it's, a, it's an exciting time for me to, to have this book finally, finally launch and be in in readers' hands.
0: Yeah, well, it is such an exciting time, and I'm so exciting, and I'm kind of living vicariously through what you're saying, because it's so true. Like, so much of my writing process can be in my head about, but often when I when i can kind of catch the inspiration and think about you know the hearts i can touch or you know the ways that i can actually make a difference in the world by sharing my story in a fully expressed way then you know my writing comes from almost a different source if that makes sense
1: yes it it i mean you know i've been teaching writing for over 20 years and i'm i'm working with writers all the time and there are those moments where you tap into something it's really a source that's it's beyond your ego or your mind or even your memories, and it, you're tapping into some truth. And often on the page, I can I can access truth or wisdom or insight that I find really challenging in my real life in my daily life. So I think words have a lot of power. And when you can convey them on the page so that it, it becomes more than just your personal story, but you tap into that universal vein, there's just nothing more exciting than that. It's just a thrilling experience, and you know it when it's happening.
0: You, you do know it. I got a shitting grin on my face because I do know it when it's happening, and it's the best feeling. It really is. And so, you use a word a lot in your in your description kind of of the writing, and, and there's like this betrayal piece. and And I wondered if we could start by just just talking a little bit and framing the book a little bit more about kind of the dynamic between you and your mother and what that kind of betrayal in terms of levels of the complexity that really brought to your relationship.
1: Yeah. You know, my mother was an incredibly complex woman and she had many wonderful qualities. And in some ways she was a wonderful parent. I mean, she was not I thought of her as an ogre for many years, but now, with the perspective I have now, I, I don't see her that way. But she'd she like to be the sun, and she wanted me to be a planet orbiting around her. And I'm a very strong personality, and I was really not, I, w- I didn't come into life to be revolving around anyone else. <laughs> I, I, I was a sun myself. In fact, the, the title of the book, The Burning Light of Two Stars, really is describing that dynamic of these two powerhouses at odds with each other. So, you know, my relationship with her was pretty good and wonderful in some ways when I was a young child. But when I hit puberty and I when I started to express and articulate who I was and who I was becoming, and it didn't fit her idea of the kind of daughter she wanted me to be, that's when we started having major conflict and you know i grew up in the 60s and 70s and i was a love child so i when i was a teenager i joined an, an ashram i had a guru and i you know i i was a really difficult daughter you know i quit college 3 times i you know, i did drugs i i i did you know whatever was out there i was doing it and i still was you know going to school and i was getting a's which was really important to my mother but the, but each decision I made or each thing I experimented with, she always took it as like a personal affront and she would meet it with rage, intense anxiety, fear, and really clamping down and trying to control me. And of course, I just went in the opposite direction. So I always felt like I was fleeing from her control. And I think in the book one time, I, I describe it as feeling like she was like a spider and I was caught in her web. I mean, that's mm. how I perceived her for many years. And that became kind of a habitual story. We we were discussing that before the show. I had this habitual story about my life and about my mother and about our relationship, and it was pretty rigid. And I cast her as the villain. You know, I, I don't now, but at that time, for many years, I was wronged and she was the villain. I came out to her as a lesbian when I was 23, and she her response was, you've confirmed my worst fear about you. So that that's typical of how she responded to who I was and who I was becoming. And that really led to a lot of difficulty between us. And I kept moving further and further away. I'd grown up in New Jersey. I ended up in California, which was really as far as I could get without crossing an ocean. But what really cemented the rift between us was when I was in my late 20s, about 27 years old, I began to remember sexual abuse with my grandfather, who was her father. And I had, you know, buried that memory as a way to cope as a small child. And it started coming back in the context of really of my first deep love relationship, which I think is a pretty typical time for those kind of memories to surface because I was suddenly experiencing intimacy and sexuality together, and it just triggered these memories. And I was Absolutely devastated. My life completely fell apart and I really needed my mother. And when I reached out to her to tell her, which I dreaded for a long time, you know, she said I was lying, I was making it up to kill her. And she that cemented our rift because I needed her. It was the worst time in my life. And that was the biggest betrayal. She abandoned me. She chose her dead father over her living daughter. And this is a pretty typical scenario. This is not unusual in a home where there's been some kind of sexual abuse or sexual violence, but she could not be there for me. And so, we went through years of me desperately wanting her support, and just as desperately, she wanted me to recant. Mm. And then I, you know, I made things much worse by teaming up with a writer, Ellen Bass, and writing The Courage to Heal, which was my first book. And that book took off like an underground bestseller way beyond any expectations we had. I mean, it just—it was like it started a firestorm. It started a whole movement of survivors learning they could heal and recover from trauma. And it, it just was this phenomenon at that time. It was 1988, and I was only 31 years old. I wasn't really equipped to handle this kind of sudden notoriety for the worst thing that had ever happened to me. Mm. But the fact that I was going on national TV and I was, you know, I was on Phil Donahue, I was on all these shows that to my mother, you know, to my whole family on her side was just horrible. You know, I was airing the dirty laundry and the lies they believed uh, on national TV. And so that at that point I stopped being invited to the weddings and the bar mitzvahs and the, I was really cast out of the family. And also, I needed space from them, because I needed to heal without their constant, you know, denial and rage, and so it was was a very painful time for me, and for, I think, definitely my mother, and I think, I don't know about my other relatives, but I think my mother and I both were really suffering during that time of our deepest estrangement. I know, you know, I wasn't talking to her, but I thought about her every day, and I, could hear her voice in my mind. Mm. Um, I could hear her her voice, and I wouldn't wouldn't have admitted it at the time, but I really longed to make peace with her. Mm-hmm. So you know, it it I was estranged, but she was in my head all the time.
0: Yeah, you did such a great job of explaining what that was like with all the women like waiting around the corner at that one you know big speaking event uh, that. You were headed into and you had gotten on the phone with her just before you walked in and her ears were like echoing or or your her words were echoing in your ears and you you said you had to shut it behind like a steel
1: wall, right? Right. So that I could I could get up on stage and inspire these hundreds of women who would come to hear me speak. And when I would get up on those stages during that period of time, it was almost like not that someone else took over, but I really was able to tap into a kind of healing inspirational energy that was beyond my own personal capability. Like I was still so much in the throes of my own healing process at that time and my life was falling apart. I was a wreck. But I would get on stage and I I would root myself into the earth and I would just feel like my heart open and I was really a channel for this healing energy and inspiration. And then after these speaking gigs, all these women would come and I would sign their books and I would talk to each one individually. And then I would go back to my hotel room and I would just collapse.
2: Mm.
1: And I, I would just shrivel because all that energy would leave me and I was just left with kind of the desolation of my life at that point. So I was in a very kind of split place at that time. And of course, you know, in the many years since then, I have worked really hard to integrate, you know, so that... I'm the same person on the inside and the outside, and uh, I can I can handle that kind of energy coming through me with much more grace than I could it was more than thirty years ago
0: right yeah I mean, and the way that you're describing it is so true to my experience as it relates to trauma and trauma around my mother and you know when you have a complicated relationship with a mother, a difficult relationship with a mother, finding where you end and she begins and those boundaries and not understanding or having language around what codependence or enmeshment looks like. And especially when you've been raised in a situation where you've been forced to kind of live in unsafe space, whether it's unpredictable or it's physically unsafe. And then there's impossible circumstances, such as actually telling your mother what happened eventually. And just having that then result in her making it as into a personal attack upon her versus being able to be with you, you know, as a cherishing mother in your time of need. And it brings up so many interesting conversations for me around just what that archetype of mother, you know, really means and how distorted that mothering gets through kind of a very patriarchal system. And I even think about, again, the in- entitlement in some ways of your grandfather and the incest that you suffered and that, of course, again, being kind of at the hands of kind of that male figure in in our lives that just, I don't, I don't know if you have anything you want to add on that, but it just feels really complicated. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is really complicated. You know, I mean, part of the the journey for me, this this book is, you know, the, the, what I just talked about in terms of the past with my mother is really the backstory to the story I wrote about here, which is the, you know, that's sort of what is you need to understand to understand the rift between us, but really the story that I told was my mother got old and the question I faced was Can I become a caregiver to someone who betrayed me in the past?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: My mother, we we live, you know, 3,000 miles apart. And when she was almost 80 years old, she called one day. And this is the inciting incident for the story. It's what kicks the story into motion. She calls and announces that she's moving across the country to my town for the rest of her life. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I was stunned, I was shocked, I was panicked completely panicked but there was also a part of me that was kind of hungry for it like Mm -hmm. and and there's actually something I want to read from the book but there was a part of me that hoped that finally at the end of her life that we would be able to reconcile all the way and we had already achieved by this point a pretty good degree of like a working relationship it had taken 20 years to get from being totally estranged to agreeing to disagree and being able to have a good relationship, but not an intimate one. You know, I never confided in her about anything that really mattered to me. You know, I just, I didn't, I never felt I could be vulnerable to her, but yet we had worked out how to be together and how to find things we could enjoy that were separate from this giant kind of turd in the living room, which was the abuse, you know, Mm -hmm. because I, I got to a point where, I didn't really need her to believe me anymore. You know, I had healed enough that I was moving on and what she thought about it didn't matter. And she was able to let go of the idea that I would ever recant my story. And we began to look for ways to develop new threads of connection between us that were not based on this huge conflict at the center of our relationship. And we had done pretty well at that. And I would have said that we were reconciled. But then when she was old, and she moved across the country, and she was starting to develop dementia, you know, suddenly that 3,000-mile buffer between us was gone. Mm. And, you know, her decline, it just pushed every button I had. And, and you know, she made those buttons. So, it was kind of inevitable that that would happen. But suddenly, we were at war again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it, it was over her independence. You know, she... As anyone with dementia is usually in the early stages, nothing was wrong. She didn't need any help. She could drive. She could. And I, you know, saw that she needed help. And then we just locked heads again, and it just it brought up all the challenges from the past. And yet, I, I wanted to follow through. I wanted to be there for her, and it was just incredibly difficult. And that's that's what this story is about. It's about the mostly about the period of time from that phone call until her death, and what I had to face and what I had to deal with as a caregiver to her. So I want to read this this little bit. This was um, soon after she moved out to California where I live. And, and she, she never lived with me. I don't think I could have ever handled that proximity. I don't think she could have either. And fortunately, we were privileged enough that we didn't have to, we were not forced into that situation. I think it would have destroyed us both. Mm. Um, so she lived separate from me. And when this scene happens, I had been away on a work trip for a week, teaching writing somewhere, I don't know where, and I came back and I went over to her place and like all her neediness had built up in the week I had been gone. And I came in and, you know, it, it manifested in like her printer was broken, like I came in and I started like fixing things. Mm-hmm. And I, I was able at this point, I was like the good daughter, you know people would say, oh, I wish I had a daughter like you because I was very attentive. And I went through the motions of doing all the tasks, all the research. You know, I, I made sure, she, you know, I did everything, but I was still distant. And this day, um, she confronted me about it. And and then afterwards, this is this is what I wrote. Three decades earlier, I had erected an impenetrable wall between us, a fortress with narrow slits so I could watch her approach. I ensured my defenses were prepared anytime she came near me. I always had an escape plan. It's true we later reconciled, and the fact that we were able to create a functional relationship was a miracle. But it wasn't an intimate miracle, because I never took down my wall. Oh, I taught myself to be kind to her in a fake-it-till-you-make-it sort of way. But I still held her at bay. My wall just got subtler. It wasn't permeable. It was hard and opaque, and there was no door. We only met in the antechamber, the common room where guests are received. Only my polished self was on display, my masked self, and only in the antechamber. Mom never saw my inner sanctum, and I never saw hers. I got as close as I could within the constraints I had established. But closed is closed, and a closed heart is a lonely one. The price I paid to keep my mother out, at first with withdrawal, later with an armed fortress, and finally with the polite rules of detente, was love. The pure, unfettered love I longed for. The pure, unfettered love she craved. That day in her kitchen, when I couldn't comfort her, I had to face it. My mother was still a stranger to me, with tentacles of need I was loath to touch. I wanted to be more than kind, to do more than merely what was right. I wanted to love my mother, just once, freely and with the relief of a lost, exhausted child. Beyond words and beyond all pretense, I wanted to lay my head on a place that was safe, just once, before it was too late.
0: I'm listening from such a place of being able to relate, and the words and the images that come, you know, as you talk about that exhausted child that just wants that safe lap, that safe place with her mother, just once, it's so provocative to me. And it's, well, and I was just going to, you know, add that there's, there's just a hard truth about some relationships that, you know, are just, you know, that, that longing never goes away, is, is all I wanted to say, yeah.
1: And I, that's what I was actually going to say, too, is that not every relationship can be reconciled. And there's a lot of different types of reconciliation, you know, um, different levels of reconciliation. But there are absolutely circumstances where the best choice someone can make is to set boundaries and hold those boundaries and to, you know, the person is just too toxic, you know, or uh, you're dealing with a mental illness or the person is violent, you know, or they've shut the door and there's no way in or when you're with that, then it just repeats the same cycle of hostility or abuse. Mm -hmm. And so, sometimes it's just, it's impossible to do anything directly with the other person. But I really maintain that even when direct reconciliation is impossible, that we can still find a place of peace with the relationship on the inside. There was a woman I interviewed for a the book I wrote called, uh, I Thought We'd Never Speak Again. This was, it was a, it was my first book on reconciliation. It was more of a how-to book. And this woman had come from an incredibly abusive home. Her parents had sexually abused her and her siblings. And then she grew up and she was certain that it was just her or just them. And so she let her children be with these, her parents, and Mm -hmm. they sexually abused the grandchildren too. So she absolutely was never going to see them again or have them in her life again. And for many years, it was just this, you know, just shut down bitterness. But as many years went by and she went through her own healing process, she began to think of them in a different way from a distance. And she began to develop more compassion for them and just to think about what was it like for them to live with that horror of who they were 24 hours a day, Mm -hmm. Um, and and to look at the the generations of abuse and the whole history that had led to who they became. And she said she was able to really release them so that she wasn't carrying them anymore. And the way she described it, she said, you know, Laura, she said, I had to close the door, but I left the porch light on.
2: Mm.
0: It's so beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's, you know, it speaks to this you know, when we've done our healing work, right, or we're we're never done, well, I'll say that, but we, I, I believe we do get to a point where we can kind of still be these open-hearted people that we were always meant to be, like not just so shut down and bitter and cynical and resigned, right? Like to live with that open heart, but to know kind of like, you know, to know the difference between what self-abandonment looked like before and what self-love looks like now and to be able to coexist with the world in a way that doesn't allow anyone to take advantage of you anymore, but still allows you to be open should an opportunity present itself.
1: Yeah, beautifully said.
0: And I think it's okay. Well, I've wondered if it's okay to stay hopeful. You know, because on one level, there's just the hard truth. And then on another level, I've learned that sometimes the way things happen are not necessarily what we expect to happen, but things do happen that help us come to a resolution. And, and so that porch light on reminds me of the hope, you know, that I still hold and I'm not waiting for it. Do you know what I mean? I'm not.
1: Right, exactly.
0: So there's the
1: difference. Yeah, there's a difference between open-heartedness and longing. Mm. And I think we need to get past longing or the, or the sense that if this doesn't happen, I can't be complete. We have to find a way to be complete and then find a place of being open-hearted. And I think it, you know, it's a lifetime journey. This is, this is not easy, and, and this kind of nuance of the healing process is not at the beginning of your healing process. You know, it's, it might be decades into it that you, you're able to get to this place, and, you know, if you had told me, when I was in, this is really interesting, when I was in my early 30s, and my mother and I were the most estranged, I went for a hike with my brother Uh, He was living in Colorado, and we went hiking in Rocky Mountain National Park, and we had this conversation, and my parents had been divorced since I was 14, and I said, uh, when they get old, I said, I'll take care of dad, you take mom. I said, I cannot possibly take care of her when she gets old, like, there is no way. And he said, sure, (laughs) you know, as brothers do. Uh, He said, sure, I'll do that and and so that's where i was at you know in, in when i was in my early 30s i never if you had told me that i would be at my mother's deathbed and that i would be her caregiver at the end of her life um, and that i would choose to do that mm. i would have just looked at you like you were absolutely insane <laughs> like i just could not perceive that as a possibility so i think you know one of the things i hope that my story communicates is that Sometimes change is possible in the most intractable relationships and that, that we just really don't know what's going to happen. And sometimes it's with the other person and sometimes it's just a really deep shift inside ourself that allows us to perceive differently. There's, a, there's an epigraph that I used by a former student of mine, a writer named Deborah Fruchet, and she said, every time I look in the rearview mirror, the past has changed and i you know to me that that really sums up my experience in this you know epic mother daughter relationship every time i look at the past every time i look in the rearview mirror the past has changed and you know my perception of the relationship my perception of my mother my perception of myself has just gone through such an evolution and i had to you know i had to work really really hard when i was writing this book to become more and more vulnerable as I wrote it. At the at the beginning, my mother was the villain and I was the hero, like in the early drafts. This is one reason it took me 10 years. And I had a friend who read an early draft and she just said to me, she said, Laura, this is not the courage to heal, it's the courage to reveal. Mm-hmm. And she said, you just are so buttoned up and you know you're making yourself look so good and you've got to get over that. And so I really worked hard to become vulnerable and to look at my own failings, and and to really see this as a relationship between two flawed human beings.
0: Embodiment is a subject I talk about in almost every episode of the Revelation Project podcast, because I've discovered that for most women, it's the way back home to ourselves. When we reveal what truly gets in the way of loving the skin that we're in, Then we allow the deep healing that aligns us to our true selves and opens us to the miracles and magic that's possible in our lives. For years I was in a continual unconscious battle with myself. I punished myself based on what I thought my body should look like or for what I ate or didn't eat. When we feel ashamed of our own sacred bodies or blame ourselves for eating, we diminish our power and perpetuate the trance and the belief that we're not enough. It wasn't until I made peace with my body that a whole new world opened up for me, which is why I'm thrilled to share the Body Peace Seekers, created by Nina Mandelson for women who desire a relationship with food and your body that is caring, nourishing, loving, and peaceful. Nina has guided thousands of women to feeling good in their own skin through Body Peace Seekers. It's a soul-nourishing opportunity to create a sustainably supportive relationship with yourself, as well as a sisterhood of women who are celebrating a new way of being in relationship with their own sacred bodies. So if you're listening today and want to be free of the tyranny of body shame and blame, then I wanna encourage you to reach out to Nina. You can learn more about the Body Peace Seekers by visiting com slash revelation. Again, that's ninamanelson.com slash body peace revelation. Be sure to tell Nina too that you heard about her through the Revelation Project podcast because she has a special gift just for our listeners that will add another powerful level of support to your experience. Again, it's Nina Manelson, N-I-N-A-M-A-N-O-L-S-O-N dot com slash body peace revelation. I'd love it, Laura, if you could actually summarize the on 105, it's beekeeper and read, you know, summarize what you were doing there. But I would love for you to read the last piece on 108 because I just that hit me. And what you did there was take responsibility. And you've done that in several places in this book, which is why I think it's so compelling to me, because there are so many ways that there was and have been, you know, like, looking at my piece in in some things, whether it's because it was my perspective, or it's because I was not aware that I was doing certain things that were kind of making it even more impossible in some ways but I wondered if you could address that one
1: yeah I mean there's when my mother died I discovered in her things this cache of letters and big folder of letters and and she had saved every letter she'd ever received from me and she had saved copies of every letter she had written to me, including like first drafts of letters that were never sent. You know, the really raw ones. And I had done the same. So when I put those letters together, there was like two huge file folders of handwritten correspondence. I mean, this was this was taking place when we were estranged. And it was before the internet, it was before email. And so there was this incredible... Set of letters, and my mother was a good writer as well. And reading those letters was such an incredible confrontation for me because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I had this set story, this habitual story of how things had been. And then when I started reading the letters and it was written evidence, Mm. I found out that my story had a lot of holes in it and it was true, but it was only part of the truth. Like I used to say, my mother and I didn't speak for seven years, but then <laughs> this dusty, moldy letters from the past, they proved otherwise because we were writing to each other. When we couldn't see each other, we were writing letters to each other. And mm-hmm. and they weren't, some of the letters were hostile and angry and confronting, but some of the letters were kind and loving and generous. And I suddenly had to see that I had created a storyline that I needed to support with evidence that I was wronged and my mother by my mother. And yes, she did wrong me. I'm not saying she didn't, but but it was this this rigid thing and so once I started reading them there was an intimacy in these letters that I didn't remember. And then there was there was like this is a little example and you know I when I was working on this I worked with a lot of editors And almost everyone said, you have to cut these letters out of the book. And there's not a lot of them. I think there's like maybe eight in a 360-page book. So it's not a big element. But I was just determined to hold on to them. Even though everyone said the book is too complicated, just get rid of them. But it's really the only place my mother gets to have her own voice.
2: Mm.
1: Otherwise, all the scenes where there's dialogue, that dialogue that I'm recreating for her is through my own filter, And it's not really purely her, but these letters are her actual words. Um, So I just, I want to read just a little bit of one of her letters, just to get her voice here. I wrote to her, you know, basically saying, you know, I, do you think I like hardening and rage? Don't you think I want a nice family to visit? I want reconciliation, but not your way. I can't sweep the last year away like it never happened. So we could go back to trading chop liver recipes over the phone. You asked me to tell you about my life. What should I say? That I got laid off my job and now I'm seeking funding to work on my incest book full-time? That I spend my days interviewing women, survivors of sexual abuse out of a need for inspiration? That healing is possible? What can I write to you about? The weather in San Francisco? The fact that I have no love life because my sexuality was decimated by your father's touch? How can I tell you any of it? You don't want to hear it. Writing this hurts. It is an actual physical pain, a longing for something out of reach. I don't know how to reconcile such rage with the depth of love I feel. For me, there was only the terrible rage and the awful love, and I don't know what to do with either of them. So that's what that's like a little bit of what I wrote to her. Mm. And then she writes back, she says, I read your letter amid mixed feelings of anger, hurt, and compassion, and decided to send no reply. I deserve at this time in my life not to have to defend myself against such rapid attacks. Whatever I say will only end up as further ammunition of all the evil I inflicted upon you. But silence is not my way, especially when I feel your terrible pain. I pray you will be able to work through your suffering. Assuming you were a victim of child molestation, are you going to hang on to it forever? Make this the cause of your life and destroy your potential for happiness? Yes, I hear your ambivalence, the love for family. You are wrong about one thing. You do have a family. You certainly have a mother, but I no longer wish to play the masochist who happily accepts the abuse you seem to need to heap on me. When you are ready for the relationship we deserve together, I shall be ready. Nothing is ever perfect." (laughs) So this is what we were going back and forth. And, you know, the the dynamic really was that this whole time we were estranged, I was reaching out to her and setting up a wall at the same time.
0: And I would love to read this if I could, this last paragraph, because it's just so beautiful. As I study our correspondence, one dynamic stands out. I was reaching out to my mother and pushing her away at the same time. I never stopped yearning for her, even as I held her at bay. Like a beekeeper who wears protective gear to reduce the number of stings, I protected myself as I extended my hand. Like, wow. Oh, my goodness, right? So, Laura, what, what does the healing process from trauma look like over the course of a lifetime?
1: Well, I think it, it um, at first, I mean, in my experience and and many others there there's there's a fixation first on the trauma i mean that you have to really focus on what happened to you and that that involves naming it and it involves grieving for what you've lost it involves getting angry at what happened to you it means breaking silence and not keeping it just inside yourself and you know many other steps to actually confronting the trauma and you know for me i did a lot of therapy Um, and really needed the help of a therapist, people use a lot of different modalities to help along their healing journey. And for me, and then there's like all the ways we cope with trauma, then we have to deal with those, you know, like the habits, like it could be an addiction, it could be some other compulsive behavior, it could be the way we dissociate, that was a big one for me. Um, We have to deal with those things we did that at one point were functional and saved us, but then when we become grown up, really interfere with us living the lives we want to live. So then we have to deal with all that fallout, you know, and then we have to deal with intimacy and are we capable of being intimate when we've been damaged in an intimate relationship, you know, so that's like a whole other level. And then, you know, there was a certain point I, There was a a woman I interviewed for Courage to Heal, and I never forgot her. It was two sisters. And they said it was like that they they were focused on their healing intensively, and then they said it started to feel like they were wearing a sweater that was too tight, Mm. and they had to take it off. But that taking it off would mean that they would feel so exposed to the world. And that, for me, there definitely was a period, a point, where I didn't want to identify With being an incest survivor anymore. I mean, you know, if you'd asked me at 27 who I was, I would have said incest survivor, and that would have been the only answer because it was so consuming, you know, and now if you were to ask me who I am, you know, I would say, you know, I'm an author, I'm a teacher, I'm a workshop leader, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother, I'm a swimmer, you know, I'm a hiker, I'm a sister, I'm a friend. And incest survivor would not even be on the list. It's not that it doesn't exist. It's like it's like in the fabric of who, what shaped me. So I think there's a point where you you get to where you stop identifying with the injury,
2: oh, such, and it
1: stops becoming yeah. your identity. And then then it's like, okay, if I'm not going to use that as the reason I am the way I am, like when I'm looking at my flaws, my human flaws then i have to take responsibility for myself and and then it's like who who would i have been if this had never happened to me and how can i reclaim that person and that you know that that's like the journey of the rest of your life and i you know i find that as i go through different cycles in my life that there are certain kind of in the evolution of a life that there're certain moments when i get triggered again and some of the the old pain or the old anxiety or the the habit toward dissociation um, comes back, and it could be you know I had cancer, you know I when I had cancer a lot of stuff came up for me, um, or you know when people are aging or they retire or they're they're suffering a, a a loss of a death of someone close to them, but all kinds of situations where you have less power can bring up again this. Trauma from the past, even though it's feels like it's resolved, so I, I feel like it's always it's always with me in a way, but it's not it doesn't shape my life. it's just it's given me both the way I look at it, both strengths and vulnerabilities mm-hmm. and i I just fully accept it. You know, it's not something I want to get away from or or think I should get away from, and it's it's brought me huge strengths and huge courage and Deep compassion for other people who are suffering.
0: Yeah, well, the word I often use is it tenderizes us.
1: Oh, I love that. Yeah.
0: You know, like it's, like that doesn't happen without a few really hard whacks, you know, like, whoa. And there's a way that trauma continues to inform you, but it no longer shapes you. Yes, yes is what i heard you say and and it's it's so beautiful that you are bringing this book out into the world because again i just want to acknowledge your eloquence in in how you wrote it because i know as somebody who feels the level of complexity that this brings like what it's like to write about this and it's you've given me You know, real inspiration for being able to do it myself in a really generous and compassionate way towards both of us. And and I love the way that you've brought your mother's voice and gifts. I especially loved, you know, you were sharing, and I I don't want to say too much, but you were sharing about witnessing your mom kind of in the in the spotlight and just how magnificent, you know, she also was. And so there's the both and of living with a complicated parent or a parent relationship. And then, you know, also just what it really does take and the courage it takes and the grit to heal, you know, to really just have the courage to heal as I heard there was a pretty amazing there's author there's that, like wrote, yeah, that wrote that book. So, you know, I know that we're coming up on time here, Laura, but this has just been beautiful. I can't wait to finish the book myself. And I wanted to invite you to invite our listeners to follow you and to learn more about what you're up to right now.
1: Yeah, so I have posted the first five chapters of the book On my website, and I I really want to invite people to go read them for free. The URL is www.lauradavis.net forward slash chapters. And and since I posted them, I've heard from, almost every day I hear from, I get an email from a woman and and she'll say something like, I know I'm going to have to take care of my mother and I've been dreading it, but now I'm looking at it as an opportunity. Mm. You know, or... I'm thinking about my mother or my daughter in a whole new way. I mean, one woman even wrote and said she had picked up the phone and called her mother for the first time in 18 years. So <laughs> so I invite you to read those chapters. Again, it's www.lauradavis.net forward slash chapters. And I also, you know, if you're a writer and you're interested in creative expression, I teach a lot of writing workshops, many of them online. I'm taking a um, a group of writers to Tuscany next June. It, it was a trip that was postponed in 2020 and, of course, in 2021. And 2022 is going to be the time to go. And if you're interested in a... Um, Eco-friendly vacation in a gorgeous villa in Tuscany that has a creative element of writing a couple hours every day and then exploring. It's lauradavis.net forward slash Tuscany. Um, and I'm I'm really excited about that. I have missed those trips. I used to do two or three a year, um, taking people all over the world. And I'm, I'm I I've never been to Tuscany, so I'm I'm really excited about that. Sign so, me up. <laughs> So, just come to lauradavis.net, and you'll see my um, social media there, and um, I hope to meet you sometime. Well,
0: I have a feeling that, you know, there's way more to talk about, too, because I know that you, just just learning about you and hearing now and reading your writing has just, like I said, I mean, this is a beautiful, beautiful book for our listeners. So, please, by all means, pick it up and take I love that you published the first 5 chapters because there's a sh- that's a surety that people are going to, you know, like what happens next because it is like that. I mean, it's really compelling read. So again, Laura, thank you. And we're gonna, I, I would love to have you back, really, like to have another conversation, even about, you know, some of your work with the courage to heal, because I think there's such a big conversation. There So many, so many people who can continue to relate to and read and benefit from that, that work.
1: That would be great. I mean, I'd also love to come and just talk about Using writing as a tool for healing, you know, which is what I've been doing for decades, helping people do that. So yes. I think I think your audience might enjoy that.
0: They um, absolutely would. And and just so, you know, everybody knows too, and Laura will be sure to put your links as well in the show notes so that everybody can easily find you. And until next time, more to be revealed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.